welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. This podcast features experts in the field talking about the most salient issues in healthcare reform. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. I'm your host, Emily George, and today we have the privilege of having Dr. Lisa Bilamovich with us. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thanks, Emily. It's uh, great to be here. Lisa is the president and co-founder of Just Healthcare, a membership organization for health systems and physician groups to share learnings and best practices, and also receive strategic advice for building capacity to better serve their communities. And Lisa, I'd love to hear more about Just Healthcare, but first, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey and and how you moved into your current role at Just? Sure. So I am a uh, physician by background, and um, I am from Texas and then uh, trained in radiology at Johns Hopkins. Uh, And as I was contemplating what I wanted to do with my career, I had the opportunity to uh, move to the business side of healthcare and spent uh, uh, over a decade at a company called the Advisory Board uh, based in Washington, D.C., leading healthcare strategy work for hospitals and health systems around the the country. Uh, You know, I thought that it would be a year or two sojourn from uh, clinical uh, care, but I ended up uh, uh, staying for my career and rose to be the company's chief medical officer. And then uh, two years ago with a partner, I broke away and founded uh, our own firm, Just Healthcare. And what we try to do is give uh, health systems and physician leaders uh, exactly what the name of the company says, the gist uh, of what matters for your strategy. And we currently work with a, uh, a membership of about a dozen uh, health systems across the country. And uh, in the past uh, uh, couple of months have been helping them think through how to navigate uh, what COVID is uh, uh, is is bringing to their systems and, and now starting to transition to think about uh, how strategy is going to need to evolve as the pandemic continues and hopefully once we exit from what we're going through now. And, and there are going to be for sure a lot of changes forthcoming and we've already seen a lot of those happening now. And before we jump a little bit into some of the other questions I have for you, can you tell us a little bit more about just healthcare and um, some of the activities and work that you do with these health systems and physicians? Uh, so we work uh, with uh, senior members of the executive team, primarily at uh, uh, medium and large health systems across the country. Uh, we work on a membership model. So, you know, organizations work with us uh, over time. And we really like to think of ourselves as uh, adjunct members of the executive team or advisors to systems. We have a fantastic mix of, of markets and organizations. As uh, we like to say, we go from uh, Amish country in Pennsylvania all the way to Beverly Hills, California. So it's a fantastic perspective to get to see how healthcare looks uh, from market to market, um, the different challenges that systems face, as well as the commonalities. And uh, we work with uh, systems on you know, the big strategic questions that they face. Uh, How are they going to grow? What is the future business model uh, for the organization? How do they work with doctors, work with payers? Um, And how really do they build their strategy to face whatever the market puts in front of them? Mm. 
I'm sure your depth and breadth of experience right now has really given you an interesting lens, like you said, in the midst of our pandemic. And one of the things that I think is really interesting to watch is that is the shock that our healthcare system has gone through over the past few months. And I would love for you to share with us some of the things you've been thinking about when it comes to how the system may be changed permanently as a result. Um, what are some of the things that, that you believe are more reactionary? Um, what are, what are some of your thoughts around that? Yeah. So if you think about where systems have been across the past two months, as most of our economy has shut down, um, you know, most systems started taking elective procedures, canceling uh, um, elective office visits around mid-March and really in earnest, you know, started working 18 hours a day to prepare for a surge of COVID patients. So a huge change to their supply chain, their operations, the way that they're delivering care, the way that they are um, interacting with and, and providing um, uh, clinical uh, guidance to patients. You know, now we all know about the uh, hot spots of, uh, you know, massive numbers of COVID patients that have hit some cities and markets across the country, New York, New Jersey, Detroit, uh, uh, New Orleans. But for the average health system out there, uh, COVID patients have actually been slower to materialize than they would have uh, predicted. Um, so, you know, they're dealing with sort of a one-two punch. They have taken a lot of their capacity and business offline, but yet hospitals haven't filled in the way that they expected to with very sick patients uh, who they were expecting to walk in the door. And, you know, I think that's one of the big public misconceptions out there. If you talk to the average guy on the street, they would say, you know, well, of course, um, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, a health crisis. Uh, healthcare organizations must be super busy. You know, and I think if you are the average hospital in the country um, or the average physician's office, uh, you are a lot emptier uh, and your volume has gone way down uh, compared to what most people would think. You know, so this has also precipitated a financial crisis for hospitals and doctors, particularly those who have, you know, relatively, you know, small uh, amounts of reserves. You know, how are they going to keep the lights on? You know, there's a big range of financial health of uh of providers across the country, but you know, definitely the uh, the financial picture. If you take a snapshot right now, is is pretty dire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and you, I would love for you to just expand a little bit more. It, it seems like there are a lot of um, you know financial shocks that we're experiencing. Um, what are some of the ways, and you, you touched a little bit on maybe the way that um, we will see changes in, in some of elective surgeries mm -hmm. or elective procedures. Um, what are some of the other effects that you think that you'll see as a trickle-down effect? Well, you know, the one I think that uh, everyone is, uh, is honed in on now and that consumers have probably experienced for the first time in their lives is the opportunity to do a telemedicine or video or phone visit with their provider. You know, as we saw doctor's offices, uh, you know, nearly shut down to in-person visits. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think has been a huge positive element of all of the uh, impacts on healthcare has been how quickly 
doctors and health systems were able to ramp up to offer virtual care. Uh, you know, it's interesting, the technology that we are using to do virtual visits is largely the same stuff you're using to do any old video conference or say hi to your grandma. It's Skype, mm -hmm. it's Zoom. We haven't invented something new, but it, you know what? It turns out technology was not the barrier. It was regulatory hurdles that prevented certain providers from doing uh, video visits uh, with patients. Uh, most of those are at the state level uh, and, you know, were antiquated rules that said, you know what, if you hadn't seen a patient in person before, you couldn't do a video visit for first encounter. A lot of those types of things have fallen. Payment has opened up for mm -hmm virtual care, both from Medicare and from many private payers. So it has been a true lifeline to patients and doctors to be able to, uh, you know, to connect in this way and continue to provide care uh, as the ability to meet in person has gone down. Um, this isn't going to go back. You know, in so many areas of our lives, we are getting accustomed to uh, interacting virtually. And I think what we have heard from both patients and physicians is once a patient has a video visit, they're going to want to do more. Uh, I think this spans across age groups. Uh, we often think of digital technology as being something that is for the younger, healthier portion of the patient population. But uh, we're hearing from docs across the country that they're seeing patients in their 80s and 90s who are interested in virtual visits. All the things you said about telehealth are so interesting, and I agree. I don't see us really going back at all from this. I think that we are embarking on uh, truly uh, new ways of, of practicing medicine, both from the provider perspective and the consumer perspective. Um, and I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about um, how do you think consumers will benefit from these changes? And, and what are some of the ways also um, that we could even think about um, that, that are going to be really good changes as a result of this? Well, clearly one of the challenges that consumers had in, uh, in receiving health care were barriers to access. You know, in a lot of markets, if you were a patient looking for a new patient primary care physician appointment, you know, month uh, wait times could be a month or longer. Uh, so the ability to be able to make those connections virtually uh, will open up a huge amount of capacity. Now, not every care need is best uh, uh, delivered uh, and satisfied virtually, uh, but I think this year will give doctors the opportunity to really figure out the boundaries of virtual medicine, how far can we push it? Uh, let me give you an example. It's not just primary care uh, that uh, is delivering the majority of the work that they do right now, uh, you know, over the internet. We were talking to an electrophysiologist, so a cardiologist who specializes in managing abnormal heart rhythms. And he told us that now he is essentially working full-time virtually. He hasn't been able to get back in the cath lab yet. Um, and he said, you know, he's been shocked as to how effective it is. He uh, manages patients who are largely controlled with drugs uh, and keeps their heart rhythm stable. He said, I could see these patients in person once a year, do all of the other interactions virtually, adjust their meds, monitor their symptoms. He doesn't see that going back. If you think about it from a patient's perspective, a virtual check-in at my computer maybe takes 15 minutes out of my day. What does it take if I have to go and see that doc in person? 
best circumstances, I'm driving, I'm spending an hour in the office. Uh, you know, I've taken several hours out of my job, out of my day. You know, this is going to make the delivery of healthcare so much more efficient if we're able to take the lessons that we have learned across this year and build a sustainable model off of it. Um, I also think that there is a real opportunity to push further on the goals that we had um, you know, taken as our mantle as we move toward accountable care and population health, wanting to better manage patients with ongoing chronic disease um, in their houses, out in the community, rather than, uh, you know, having them come into a formal care setting. The gains that we have made with telehealth, both with doctors and nurses figuring out how to use the medium and patients becoming comfortable with it will allow for much more efficient, frequent check-ins for patients with ongoing chronic disease. So I'm hopeful that providers will be able to push further uh, into delivering better care management that hopefully will, uh, you know, bring dividends far down the road uh, if we're able to integrate these models into clinical practice and patients' daily lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting, you know, you, you touch a little bit on access, because on one hand, we're really seeing that it is improving access um, for, for patient populations that struggle to get to the, the health center, whether that's, um, you know, transportation or, you know, financial or, you know, not having enough gas or any of those things. Have you thought any about or have you heard people talking about um, ways in which policy uh, may shift on a local or state level as far as how we make telehealth accessible to populations. If you think about countries like Estonia, where the internet is a is a human right, do you mm -hmm. do you hear people talking about making it so that people have access to computers or internet or Wi-Fi connection? Have have people been talking at all about that that you've been hearing from? You know, I think there's a larger societal question as to how we resolve the inequality of access to technology and broadband. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly this is something that is being experienced probably even more acutely right now on the uh, educational part of our society, um, you know, where wealthier children are able to flip on their laptop and dial into Zoom class. But if I, mm -hmm. am, uh, if I don't have access to the internet or to a device, it's a lot harder. Um, you know, so, it's a larger societal question, but two things I think that are specific to healthcare. There are a lot of patients who may not have a consistent home. Uh, you know, the the term that was often used when you know when I was working back in in clinical medicine was you know you have patients who you would call couch surfers who would come into the ED frequently. Uh, they may not have a stable residence because they were always moving from one couch to another. Often those patients still had a cell phone, so you could still reach them. And this has been a tactic that Medicaid. Uh, plans providing coverage to low-income Americans have used. Um, they would even provide a patient with a cell phone so that they're able to reach them for ongoing contact and uh, uh, and management needs. Um, so, you know, there could be some interesting innovations coming there from the health plan side. When you start thinking about seniors, particularly lower-income, older Americans, it's really important 
to remember that they have to be oriented to doing a virtual visit. This is something that we've heard from providers that, you know, if you have uh, an older person who's never done a video call, you can't just expect them to log in and have an efficient first visit. You need to orient them to the technology, guide them on how to use the buttons, how to talk, how we're going to you know, navigate the conversation in a different way. Of course, that investment pays dividends um, down the road. So it's worth that upfront investment. And also remember that if a senior doesn't have internet, we can still get a lot out of a phone-based visit. Uh, and that was one of the places where we saw a very positive uh, policy development just last week in that Medicare approved parity in payment for phone visits. So mm. if you have a conversation with your doctor over the telephone, it will, will at least for the rest of this year be paid equivalent to an office visit. So that helps patients, it helps providers in opening up that level of access. One of the misconceptions that we have found over the years about telemedicine is that to get a lot of value, you don't always need to see uh, the patient and the doctor through a, a video camera. A lot of times, even just texting or that voice conversation can resolve a lot of questions and provide the doctor with a lot of information. So our prediction is even as we continue to push the boundaries of virtual care, there will probably be a large portion of it that will be asynchronous back and forth via texting or, you know, just over the phone uh, to provide immediate and, uh, you know, more ready access to uh, getting patients answers to the clinical questions uh, that they need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, and I would love to just kind of span out, you know, to a 30,000 foot view here and, and thinking about um, all of these physician groups that you've worked with over the years, the health systems and the people that you've been talking to pretty consistently. What do you think are the biggest lessons learned right now from this time? So, you know, I think the lessons are a little bit different. If I'm talking about, you know, a physician group, particularly a smaller uh, independent physician practice versus a large health system that may employ hundreds of doctors, have several hospitals, you know, a full continuum of ambulatory assets. So I will uh, maybe treat both of them separately. If I'm thinking from that larger health system perspective, a couple of things that have bubbled up to the forefront, uh, you know, first of all, I think all of them have been shocked by the inability of their supply chains to deliver what they need, especially with regards to personal protective equipment or PPE, as we keep hearing about on the news. Uh, you know, healthcare had embraced a just-in-time supply model dominated by group purchasing organizations where they kept very little inventory in-house and relied on the fact that really good uh, delivery systems and support would allow them to get access to supplies when they need it. We're starting to see a lot of systems say, you know what, uh, I need to have my own stockpile, my own warehouse, so that if COVID returns in the fall with another big surge or something completely different hits us, uh, we're not caught off guard with only a week's worth of supplies, whether it's PPE, critical medications, uh, you know, here in-house on hand. I think that's lesson number one. Um, lesson number two uh, is they are definitely seeing um, a spotlight shown on the uh, sort of instability of their economic model. Um, pretty much every health system in every corner of the country saw their margin disappear when 
elective surgeries were canceled. Um, and you saw hospitals go from being in a healthy financial position to being in the red almost overnight. And so I think there is a real question as to what the larger, more sustainable uh, economic model of a health system should be. How do we move away from a dependence on commercial, commercially reimbursed surgeries, those funded by uh private insurance uh, as the way that we make our money and using that excess uh, margin to support the fact that we don't typically make money, if I'm the average hospital, on admitting Medicare and Medicaid patients. Uh, so, the, you know, there's a fundamental rethinking of how hospitals negotiate with insurers, what their cost structure looks like, um, and, you know, really the foundational economics of everything that they do. Um, because what we have seen in the past two months is that that economic model is really, really brittle. Um, mm -hmm. I, from the physician practice perspective, um, you know, this is another place I mentioned earlier that, uh, if you talk to the average guy on the street and what he thinks about healthcare, you know, he would be shocked that hospitals are in a financial crisis, that they're actually empty right now. The average guy would probably also be shocked that, uh, physician practices are in dire financial straits as well. Everyone thinks of doctors as, uh, you know, being financially set parts of the community and of our economy. Um, it turns out that the average physician practice has less than a month cash on hand. Uh, so when they saw their uh, office visits essentially disappear overnight, um, it put them in a really, really tough position. And, uh, you know, a lot of them have worked really hard, as we were talking about before, to convert those visits to virtual visits. Um, by and large, they haven't seen the volume completely return. They're losing dollars that they would have uh, gotten from procedures that they perform uh, in the office or in other outpatient centers. And so I think a lot of those doctors are going to be shell-shocked. Um, even if they can keep their practice going financially, accessing small business loans, it's going to be a tough road. There hasn't been a bailout uh, financially for independent doctors the same way there has been, uh, you know, billions of dollars flowing through to hospitals and health systems. Uh, but I think even for the practices that are able to make a go of it financially, there are larger repercussions that are going to be really difficult for doctors to wrap their head around. If a hospital has had a hard time getting masks and gowns and other needed PPE, a physician's office has had it 10 times harder. They're further down on the supply chain. And I hear from a lot of doctors like, man, you know, when this comes around again, I don't want to have to be working the phones, trying to find a few boxes of gloves and masks. I'm really worried about my ability to support my staff. And I think we're going to see a lot of doctors who are independent and run their own businesses today reassess whether or not that is the right economic model for them moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and it seems like in all of these lessons learned, there are um, things that probably people need to be thinking about in the short term, ways that they can make shifts and changes to the way that they're um, thinking about, you know, strategy, vision, 
um, in their efforts. And then there are long-term things. And, and Lisa, you are a national expert in delivery transformation and a trusted advisor to hundreds of, of health systems and physician networks. Um, I'm curious, what would you say is is one practical short-term thing that health systems could could apply today or in the next few months that, that you would advise them on? Um, I'm actually going to give you two. Uh, Please do. So we talked about telemedicine before and how the opportunity for this year is to figure out the boundaries of how far you can push telemedicine, where it works from a clinical perspective. I think health systems right now who have a lot of doctors employed within their systems need to be rethinking the model of physician practice. It's one thing to do all virtual visits now. We need to think about how we're going to operationally integrate in-person care with virtual care. When that comes back, how will that affect how doctors are paid? Um, really reworking the way doctors work at the most fundamental levels to thinking through supply and how we build a medical group and what we need. That is a this year question. Um, looking at my market and saying, you know what, there's a lot of independent docs who need my help. How am I going to bring some of those physicians on board if that's what they're looking for? How I'm going to grow and maintain and operate a sustainable medical group is front and center. Um, I would also say for health systems, it's going to be very important to look at my payer contracts. And this is my second this year must do. Um, we talked before about how brittle and unsustainable of an economic model we have in a lot of systems right now where there's such a heavy reliance on a small portion of the business that provides a lot of profit. I think we're going to see a lot of systems rethinking um, whether or not they want to move to risk capitated payments, um, not just because it gives them, uh, you know, the ability to manage patients in a different way, but, but it provides financial flexibility uh, in a way that they hadn't thought that they needed before. Who is doing really well right now? Health systems and doctors who get paid per member per month to manage a population of patients. I think we're going to see a number of risk-capable systems want to move more quickly in that direction. And it's probably going to mean that they're going to have to pick sides. Which payers' health plans will work with me around building those types of models? Can I move to support employers in my community in a different way? Um, in order to have a deeper relationship with them that is more sustainable. Um, you know, that is something that I think systems need to be thinking about right now as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, great, great thoughts on that. And really great tips for people in the short term. Um, as we're wrapping up, what about the long term? What are some of the long term um, lessons, or I guess I should say strategies that you would say that people need to start thinking through um, during this time? So as we think about future strategy, uh, we break up uh, the future into three time frames. Um, of course, the near future, the rest of this year is all going to be about uh, restarting and reopening 
parts of the healthcare business that have been shut down and really just, you know, making it through. How do I sustain my organization through the rest of this year? The next future or 2021, we think is going to uh, potentially bring a lot of turbulence, but yet a lot of opportunity to the market. You know, chances are we're still going to be dealing with COVID as a big underlying current of our strategy, but for systems uh, and physician groups that are well positioned, there will be a lot of strategic opportunities uh, in 2021. Um, you know, who do I want to align with? How do I want to grow? Can I bring new entities into my system uh, in a way that is strategic, that gives me a lot of, uh, you know, of positioning within my market that allows me to grow and build a different and kind organization? Um, you know, so I think that next year is going to be about a reshuffling of alignment in the marketplace. If you think about the future beyond that, the far future, the dividing line that I like to think of is, you know, hopefully at some point our strategy won't be dominated by uh, the threat of COVID. We'll have a vaccine. Um, and what really will be determining our strategy, say in 2022 to 2025, if we can optimistically cross our fingers and hope that at some point we get that vaccine, is the hangover of economic effects, uh, the political ramifications of November's election and, uh, and who is in charge. So the far future is going to be about building a sustainable delivery and growth model that allows me to succeed in an economy that is likely to be depressed for a long time. Uh, of course, the politics could go in a bunch of different directions. How are health systems going to be bailed out? How are consumers going to be bailed out? But we think that the one thing that healthcare providers can bank on is that consumers are going to be more in charge of their healthcare budget and making their own decisions about where and how they receive care, maybe even how they buy insurance, and that any provider will be well positioned in the long term if they are delivering value to consumers, to the end user of healthcare. And so, as I think about strategy moving forward, building the types of services and relationships that allow me to solve a consumer or patient's problem and earn their ongoing loyalty uh, is going to be foundational for success. And that is something that is going to benefit a provider, you know, no matter what direction the economy turns or who might be sitting in office in Washington. Great. Lisa, thank you so much just for sharing your insights and your experience and your wisdom with us. And we're so glad that you were able to join us today on the show. You're welcome. It was uh, great talking with you, Emily. Thank you for tuning in to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. Day Health Strategies is a Boston-based, mission-driven healthcare consulting firm specializing in providing timely and effective solutions to complex problems in healthcare. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at www.dayhealthstrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at DayHealthStrat. Just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of Day Health Strategies. Our producer and host is Emily George. Editing is done by Kate Gautam. 
special thanks to Purple Planet for the use of their songs. <laughs>